Hey guys, you're listening to the Mixed Feels Podcast, coming at you from NYC. We're your hosts, Cruz and Uncle Dan. Mixed Feels explores and discusses topics meant to give our listeners a heavy dose of mixed feelings. This podcast is an extension of MixedFeels.com. That's MXDFLZ.com. In case this is the first time you're tuning into the Mixed Feels Podcast and would like to learn more about who we are, be sure to check out our intro episode where we briefly share about our complex backgrounds and histories. Personal identity is not always something that people work hard to understand. Rather, it often becomes a reductive label that is passively inherited, unquestioned, and fixed. Desiring to belong, many of us settle for a less complicated choice, often assimilating into established group identities. That said, there is a great difference between those who allow the world to tell them who they are, and those who instead tell the world who they are. Camille Hoffman is someone who tells the world who she is. Her work is an extralingual exploration that challenges the essentialism of fixed and binary worldviews. One gets the sense that Camille puts in the kind of introspective work necessary to understand her internal landscape, and from this, creates a physical, material, and real manifestation of something as abstract as personal identity. Her creative and layered landscapes show us just how complex a single individual living within the context of advanced capitalism can be. Camille's practice isn't meant to give her or any of us concrete answers. Instead, it allows her to express her unique assemblage of parts, which are constantly in flux and changing. From roots to water, her work is an active, fluid, and creative meditation on identity. My name is Camille Hoffman. I'm originally from Chicago. I live in New York now, and I've lived a lot of places in between those two. And I'm an artist. For this episode, we discuss Camille's upbringing and how memories from her childhood have influenced her choice of materials, and why that matters. I consider myself primarily a painter, even though I work in collage, assemblage, installation. My practice takes on many shapes and forms, and it's, it's, it's sort of organically evolving over time. We also talk about her creative process, the inspiration she finds in the natural world, and how she uses her own layered ancestry as a roadmap for the immersive landscapes she creates. Do it. <laughs> we came across Camille's work last year while visiting the Museum of Art and Design here in New York City. One of her works titled Peaceable Kingdom was on display as a part of her Van Leer Fellowship exhibition. Camille's sensitivity to place is palpable in her work. It transports you and at the same time helps you understand more fully the place you left behind and by virtue of that understand yourself. Not only did she transform the space at the Museum of Arts and Design, she did so while being deeply aware of the geopolitics of the larger spatial context within which the museum was situated. Peaceable Kingdom was a show that I did at the Museum of Arts and Design as a part of my Van Leer Fellowship exhibition. That show was a coming to terms with the real estate of that particular spot in Columbus Circle. On the sixth floor, I was maybe a little bit above eye level with Christopher Columbus. That statue is also kind of aligned with Trump International Hotel and Broadway, which was actually based on what was originally a Lenape trade route, the Wakwaska Trail. So there's a lot of intersections in that space of history, colonial history, exchange. But kind of riffing off of, of that conversation and, and thinking about conversations around Manifest Destiny, specifically in relation to archipelago in the Philippines. Quick history lesson for those who aren't familiar. 
Manifest Destiny was a 19th century belief in the divine right of Western expansion by American people to bring civil society to other so-called inferior nations. It was a type of colonialism using the construct of spirituality, or the will of God, to justify violence against indigenous peoples and anyone else standing in their way. The Calvary is here to represent our manifest destiny. Oh, what? To protect us from the Indians. You may have noticed that we white people have a way of taking what we want without regard to what the present owner might think about it. Some people could call it stealing. We call it manifest destiny. That clip was taken from the 1986 film Stagecoach, directed by Ted Post. Once Americans began expanding into the Pacific, the concept of manifest destiny was used to support the strategic rationale for occupying the Philippines. Since Camille is a daughter of the Philippinex diaspora, crafting an archipelago-themed space in Columbus Circle was a response to this colonialist worldview, as well as a way to engage with her own personal history and narrative in the present. I made an ocean-themed, archipelago-themed, immersive space in their sixth-floor gallery using vinyl, like, stock photos of, like, different idealized waterscapes, vinyl floor tiles from different dollar stores around New York, faux stone, different colors and textures. And then I had um, a series of, of wall works that included my medical records and chicken wire and paint. And so when visitors walked in, they were, they were literally walking through this ocean and walking over these fragmented pieces of land that were also mass-produced flooring. As soon as we entered the space, we were absorbed by a familiar, but at the same time completely unexpected landscape. The various shades of browns and blues created a sense that we were standing on a rock looking down into a vast ocean, while fragments of palm trees, paper and plastic images of Moana and Dora the Explorer, and pieces of the Hofu's logo floated by. Here was a kingdom pieced together by these seemingly trivial, yet meaningful affectations from Camille's memories. This world she had created, it felt so familiar, despite it all being so new and different. Having soaked it all in, we began to wonder about the significance of her use of materials and her affection for landscapes. To explain, Camille graciously brought us back to the memory and place of her childhood. My mom is a Filipina. She was born in D.C., grew up like in Maryland and then inner city Chicago. My dad is this little Jewish kid from Evanston. I believe that my parents met at a club in Chicago. My mom was out dancing with her cousins and her sister, and my dad went down the line and asked each woman consecutively if they she would dance with him. And everyone said no, except for my mom. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to discredit my dad. He's He, you know, was a charmer and, and uh, but there, and there was actual, an actual spark, clearly, enough between him and my mom to get as far as they did, and here I am. Um, but the creativity and artistic background was what really connected them. I would not be an artist if it weren't for the encouragement, the support, the exposure that both my parents gave me very early on. I never doubted the fact that I could be an artist because 
it was modeled in the way in what my mom did, it was modeled in what my grandmother did, and creative thinking was also paired with this kind of like critical thinking that both my parents really encouraged growing up. Thinking back now, as a professional artist, as a woman, that was a very, very special, very, very unique opportunity and relationship that I had with my family. Whether it was within her family background or the larger outside community, the landscapes within which she grew up were full of diversity, both at home and at school. I went to a number of public schools in Chicago. The school I went to, for the most, most of the time, Inter-American Magnet, is a public magnet school, a Spanish immersion school, founded by civil rights activists and artists. That also became a really important aspect of the way that I began to understand my place in the world and why I like to make art and what I was making art for. But definitely added a little more confusion to the mix because, you know, here I am, a Filipino Jew, Jewish kid who, more often than not, I pass as Latina. I speak Spanish fluently and don't speak Tagalog or Yiddish or Hebrew, you know, and so it's kind of an identity default, which I, which I embrace, but it just, you know, it's, it's another layer to the, to the story. I lived in the Northwest side, but like our school was in Boys Town off of Halstead, yeah. you know, and um, most of my classmates were bust. So we're all coming from different communities into that community to go to school. Also would do like, have like summer camp. Those would also be kids from the inner city, but from different neighborhoods. And I actually remember like being at a camp, it's mostly Latino kids, but then we had a bus of black kids who were coming from, at the time, Cabrini Green. And I remember when the kids came in, there was just like immediate tension. And the black kids were like, oh, like, what are all these white kids doing? We're like, we're not white. <laughs> but it was just like, there was that, that kind of like polarity that the kids, as kids, like we were already like defining. Once she reached high school, Camille relocated to Arizona for her mother's job. Despite several moves, Camille's rich experiences in Chicago never left her. She eventually ended up at California College of the Arts in San Francisco, where she was able to combine her love of art and giving back to the community. At CCA, I was in the community arts program, which is really new at the time, but my focus was on art and social practice. So I was an arts, at an art school, and my minor was in painting, but most of my time I was working in public schools around the Bay Area and learning about nonprofit development and that was a part of my education early on. After living in California for six years, she eventually found her way to New York. I ended up moving out to Brooklyn and working for a social service agency. Yeah, I was teaching and painting in my living room. Ended up leaving my teaching job and working at Trader Joe's. Like we're doing like window display for Henry Bendel on Fifth Avenue, like in the night shift, <laughs> minimum wage work, you know, designing these like display cases for like $2,000 handbags. But it allowed me the time and energy to create a portfolio that then I used to apply to grad school with and then ended up getting into Yale and was in New Haven. It was during grad school that Camille came to understand how the materials used for art weren't neutral, that they were filled with cultural baggage that wasn't always pleasant. A lot of it kind of came together for me when I was in art school. I started looking at these paintings. Are you familiar with casta paintings? Yeah. The sort of genre of casta painting, C-A-S-T-A, emerged primarily when Spain was establishing their, their new colonies 
in Mexico and the Philippines all around over South America. This was the way by which the Spaniards were able to document the kind of mixed race families that were expanding, you know, growing within within the colony, uh, typically a mix between indigenous people, African people, and European people. <laughs> but the thing about these portraits were, it was, it was a form of propaganda. Casta actually translates to caste. So it was a way to kind of reinforce colonial ideas and impose, like, caste structures on uh, particular mixes favoring the more European. And so there were these very specific names for different kinds of mixtures, some more derogatory than others, and, and, and typically the more African or the more indigenous the family was, the less civilized they were portrayed. So, you know, for me, as a Filipina, who is also mixed, I'm American, my father comes from like Russian, Polish, Jewish origins, but even Filipino culture in and of itself is, is so mixed. I was really interested in looking at these paintings, also as a painter, and thinking about like how these structures that um, have been used in art to um, reinforce or, or delineate certain kind of identities are ultimately kind of a part of the history that I inherit too. The Costa paintings reveal that the practice of painting came with a lot of heavy baggage. It was a medium that had historically been used to classify and portray people of mixed heritage, like herself, in a derogatory way. A historical critique of the painting itself allowed Camille to situate her own personal experiences and identity as an artist within a larger historical narrative. However, she continued to run up against a bigger problem. Going beyond the physical act of painting, the materials, in and of themselves, had also been used to delineate class lines and reinforce racist ideals and classist institutions. And then as I started making these things and, and then referencing these paintings, it's like, okay, well, I'm still using oil paint, I'm still using canvas. Where does the oil paint in and of itself come from? Like that is a that comes from a Western tradition. Nothing is neutral. And even something that seems as, as standard or traditional as oil and canvas has in and of itself been constructed and comes from its own cultural context. But how is one to paint without oil or canvas? Camille began to ask questions which would reorient her perspective and allow her to find new materials she might not have otherwise considered. I then had to start to think about like, okay, if I'm, I'm trying to unpack this history, I have to think even more deeply about these other materials that I'm using that I, I normally would take for granted, that this is a part of the baggage that kind of led me on this path of exploring and experimenting and just messing around with, with different kinds of things and thinking about what are materials that are already in my life, what are materials I've grown up with, what are materials that I absorb and also um, the kind of waste that I create as a human, but what is my footprint, you know? And I start to find that those materials began like this organic dialogue where they start to tell me what they want to do and how they want to be a part of the work. Camille eventually came across a surprising material that's so ubiquitous, it's easily overlooked. Plastic. I'm really interested in this material for several reasons. One of them being that regardless of class, regardless of race, regardless of any, like, unfortunately, plastic is one of those things that I can guarantee that almost every single human being living on this planet has some relationship to. One specific plastic material that I have been working with for a little while now is uh, plastic tablecloths, holiday-themed plastic tablecloths. And this relationship that I have to tablecloths kind of started 
as a child, birthday parties, you know, around the house. Plastic was, that was just something that was very present. And I started to think about that material more critically, more critically and also more nostalgically uh, as an adult when I began researching textiles, Mm -hmm. specifically indigenous textiles from the Philippines, trying to understand like what significance they held for my ancestors. And then I head to Family Dollar down, down Chapel Street. I'm going down the party aisle and I see these tablecloths. It began to resonate with me in a, in a whole new way. You know, thinking, thinking so much about how, yes, it's plastic and yes, it's, you know, celebrating Cinco de Mayo or, you know, Dora the Explorer, what, you know, like whatever theme it's, it's taking on or whatever holiday it's trying to celebrate. And even if it's five or 10 times removed, it's still trying to be a textile. It's still trying to be this ritualistic object that's placed on a table where people will gather around and more than likely eat. It's about a gathering. It's about a celebration of some sort. And so I just started buying these things up and working with them and manipulating them. I was like, there's something here. I don't know what it is exactly. Sort of a Spielberg Close Encounters moment. (laughs) This means something. But the meaning has begun to emerge as I've worked with it now for like the past five years. I think sometimes when people come to my work, there's sort of like an immediate response that's like, oh, you're making recycling art. It's about the environment. And it is. The thing is, yes, I am recycling and I am in many, many ways speaking about my environment. But typically what I find is the kind of response to the specific materials I use speaks to the background and the relationship that the person who's responding has to them. I'm always interested in thinking about who responds to it as it's like, oh, you're using trash, and who responds to it like, oh, this reminds me of a part of my life. This reminds me of a part of my home, or this reminds me of a part of my experience. Camille's thoughtful reflections on plastic materials reminded me of my own personal relationship to plastic, one mixed with nostalgic memories as well as a newfound guilt in regards to recycling and waste. I felt the need to ask Camille, is it possible to resolve good memories associated with things that we now know are destructive to our health and the environment? There's a lot of layers of contradiction that I find that I'm breaking down the way that I exist in the world and and through the way that I make my work and the materials that I use. It's kind of like a, a multifaceted question that I'm interested in asking at once. And I'm asking these questions because I don't have the answers, but the questions are all in and of themselves a part of my identity, which definitely speak to what you're saying around what is this guilt that yeah, I'm dependent on this thing to use it because it's, it's affordable, but I know that it has certain detrimental effects. But then if you zoom out from a broader perspective, from a systemic perspective, how are these products at a corporate level imposed upon poor communities of color? Why are certain products or certain kinds of foods marketed within certain communities and not others? Why do certain communities have access to knowledge around nutrition, knowledge around the food that they put into their bodies and their relation to the, to, to the larger environment. 
a lot of money is made off of poor people. That's by design. I'm reading this book right now, America's Not the Heart, by Elaine Castillo, amazing Filipina author. And there's a reference that she makes to Nestle. You know, there was this you know, very lucrative market you know, when poor mothers in the Philippines were wrongly educated that this formula was going to offer more nutrients to their baby than their breast milk would. And the thing is, this formula required water to mix it. And most of these mothers didn't have access to clean water. So there you have it. You know, this is all in the interest of profit. Who knows what was actually in this formula, even if you had access to clean water to, to, to mix it, you know. There is this systemic, or like false education that's like reinforced within these communities about removing your child from ultimately the most maternal source of nutrients and, and, and love, you know, because it's also bonding too, you know. So there's there, like from a psychological standpoint, from a, a nutritional standpoint, from a class standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, so many things can be sort of broken down and, and really looked at, you know, in this whole campaign. But this has been going on for many, many years yeah. and all over the world and here, right here in our own city. And uh, it's a big problem. So on one hand, yeah, we can feel, as educated people now, grown up, you know, like we can feel guilty about maybe certain affinities that we have around certain products or, or things that we've used or put into the environment. But on the other hand, it's a much deeper conversation. Yeah. Do we have this responsibility to to address these nuances, to raise awareness? Is it like, is it something that has to happen on a, on a larger, more like, or like revolutionary scale? Or is it something that we can sort of like chip away at? I, I, you know, things have to change from the bottom and the top, I think. You know, I, I can stand on my soapbox and say like, this is what I believe and this is what's right and this is what's wrong. But what does it mean to be like, okay, well, like I know that I want to like eat my quinoa because it's healthy and this, these are the kinds of nutrients that my body needs and this is the kind, these are the kinds of nutrients that I deserve. And what does it mean that the farmers of quinoa in South America don't have access to their own crop that their ancestors have been growing for many years, you know? And so it's like when we talk about like ethics around like food or we talk about like ethics around like materials, I think it becomes very problematic when the conversation gets limited to like, well, I'm talking about issues in the environment. I want to protect the planet. I, or I'm talking about issues of human rights. I want to protect workers. People are the environment and the environment is people. You know, we are intrinsically interconnected with the earth and with each other. If you're trying to be ethical, it's like you can't just be picky right but at the same time like how much control like it's i'm still do, right i mean I, I still actively participate in because i have to you know like the capitalist system like i still need to buy my groceries i still need to like it's pay my rent right and so i think as an artist i use my practice as a way of like navigating those questions and these worlds you know but i think ultimately like it's about continuing to ask those questions Camille had really given us food for thought. Sure, I could relate to plastic in this negative way, as something cheap, throwaway, meaningless and detrimental even. But Camille chose to see the plastics which permeated her childhood from a different perspective. Those tablecloths with prints of Dora weren't just products of a capitalist system targeting poor brown people. 
They were trying to be textiles in their own way, a ritualistic object which people, aware of these systemic issues or not, used to gather and celebrate momentous occasions in their lives. This is what Camille decided to focus on. She didn't just throw up her hands and say, this is too big of a problem, and deny plastics as a viable choice of material in her work. Instead, she chose to remain open, let these unconventional materials speak to her, and through a collaborative process, try to understand the complexities of plastic on a more personal level. Instead of feeling guilt and passivity, she saw an opportunity to use her agency to create something new. You know, I'm speaking from a very personal space, but I hope that through the images that I use, through the materials that I use, that I can create landscapes that connect to many different people's experiences, mm -hmm. while also ac accepting the fact that they're all going to be coming to it from a very subjective experience. Whereas painters throughout art history used oil-based materials to paint two-dimensional landscapes on canvas, Camille paints with plastics to create landscapes in physical spaces that human bodies can experience spatially and not merely visually. She explains to us the meaning that landscapes have for her. I see my relationship to landscape as something that's very internal. My body um, has physically traversed many different spaces. I'm interested in the kind of residue of those spaces that still resonate within my spirit. And perhaps the spirit that I carry from the landscapes that my ancestors have traversed before me. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a foundation. But just as important is the agency that I claim in creating an entirely new space. We're creative beings, and there's a lot of power in, in what we can create with intention. Continuing her exploration of the theme of inner landscapes, Camille also constructed another exhibit at False Flag, an art gallery located in Long Island City. The exhibit was titled, Rockabye, My Bedrock Bones, and it was her first solo New York gallery show. I installed a show at False Flag Projects in Long Island City that was responding to a painting by my grandmother, Shoshana, who was the first person, woman who inspired me to be an artist. And there's a particular painting of hers called Beachcombers that I grew up with in my living room. It's these figures on a beach combing through the sand looking for you know, something of value that has been left behind. And so thinking from like a metaphoric standpoint to how my grandmother lives on in me in the way that she's inspired me to become an artist, but even at a, at a deeper biological and spiritual level. The colors of the sand in that painting also happened to be very close to the colors of my skin. And so when I approached that space, I was really thinking about how can I really emphasize this, this idea around a landscape being one that is internal. A landscape that also can be worn, but also wears you. And it's like wall space that's like over 2,000 square feet. And I painted it all different shades of, of my own skin tone, but colors like throughout the seasons under varying degrees of light and pressure. So I can be very white in the winter and, and get very dark in the summer. And that's a part of who I am, what I've inherited, and a way in which my identity 
can can change and, and weave in and out of different landscapes over time. Transposing her embodied and internal landscape externally, Camille shows how one's identity need not be determined or confined by a politically co-opted concept of place. Rather, that one can shape a place can affect land without ever having to claim it as one's own. Camille's landscape work complexifies the relationship between identity and land. Oftentimes, identity is tied to land, and there's something to be said about this formulation when capitalism has its roots in land ownership. What Camille's work does is suggest to the viewer that perhaps we can reorient ourselves to land, not in a way that seeks to claim or possess it, but share it. Not see land and know ourselves in terms of boundaries and what separates this land from that, my body from yours, my culture from yours, but to try to understand the complex relations between lands, between bodies, and how they're not as different as they seem. My Queens Museum show, I made a giant version of the New York State seal. Central in that seal are symbols related to water and commerce. I replaced the ship with a balangay, a mother boat, from my, my grandmother's homeland, the Philippines. And you know we have a long seafaring tradition, and this is based on the model of a boat that was, I think, over a thousand years old that was excavated recently. And then replacing the sloop, I portrayed my friend Two Clouds, who is a young Aramapo Lenape uh, wisdom keeper and water protector. Uh, his land is in Mawa, New Jersey, uh, which is also uh, represented on that plaster model that exists within the gallery. And he is central in the work, both pictorially, but also as the work was developing, I was having an ongoing conversation with him. He was sharing Lenape creation stories with me, and I, I visited him on his land, and he was talking a lot about, at the time, um, the Pilgrim pipeline that was slotted to run through his ancestral burial ground, and the kind of battles, ongoing battles, that he and his people are, are fighting. That was really informing how the work would develop, a lot of the materials that I chose to incorporate, a lot of the images that I also chose to integrate into that work. So my conversation with Two Clouds really enabled me to think more intimately about my relationship to the water on this land that I occupy. Thinking about how the, the fluidity of water and, and that something that is so local and so intimate, it's even in my own body and what I'm consuming at this moment is also a part of this larger body that ultimately connects to these other lands. It was so, so, so special um, to spend time with Two Clouds in Mawa, to just observe, you know, what his relationship was to the rivers and the streams there, how intimately he interacted with the animals that lived around the water, that lived in the water, the plants that grew there. Two Clouds continuously reiterates this, you know, that it's, it's not water is life, water is alive. You know, that water has its own spirit, that it contains its own wisdom. And if we listen, if we spend time with it, if we're open, we can hear what it's trying to say. Through her collaboration with Two Clouds, Camille was able to further explore and create new landscapes, but this time with a stronger connection to water. With the understanding that water isn't what separates continents and land masses, but it's what connects them. That being a daughter of both the East and the West isn't so much a contradiction as it is a continuity. 
Since our conversation, Camille installed a landscape at Wave Hill, where she continued to explore the relationship between land, body, and internal landscapes. The group exhibition was called Here We Land, but her specific installation for the show was titled Las Americas in El Hogar, Americas in the Hearth. I'm interested in the aspen tree because it grows from what they call a rhizomatic root system. Young saplings and older trees will grow from the same root system. They get nutrients from the same root system. If there's a fire, if they're cut down, it can completely grow back. Some of these rhizomatic root systems can be over a thousand years old. And trees that are connected to the same root system can grow miles apart from one another. Because they go laterally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they grow laterally. So I'm interested in the rhizomatic root system as kind of a metaphor for the human family unit, for a human diasporic family unit. You know, like what does it mean to be uprooted, right? Like from like an initial homeland to another. But like what is something that is like deeper and resonates like below the surface that, that still connects one to another place or to another person or an ancestor. I want to iterate that even the experience of being a mixed person, like from a cultural standpoint, it's not even like, okay, I'm like this special person that I, I have, I have these different cultures that I come from. And then that makes me have this thing that I can like speak to, but rather that like every single human being navigating this world, this day and age is dealing with some level of complexity and contradiction within their lives. And that articulating these experiences as particularly a mixed race person is an avenue by which all humans can better understand and affirm the layers of complexity within themselves. You know, this is not a thing that like makes us exotic and have this identity that is uh, that further others us. Rather, it's a privilege that we have to be able to think and see from a pluralistic standpoint, um, multiple lenses at once. Confusing at times, but I feel that in order for like human society to evolve, and not only evolve, but survive, we have to come to terms with the fact that our neighbors are going to be different from us. They're going to see and think and come from vastly different experiences. But like how, what really matters is like at the end of the day, like, can we coexist? Because killing each other off is not sustainable, right? Creating these you know, these constructs of like of, of borders on land. Nature does not have borders. That's a man-made construct. Like a storm cloud travels through a sky. It doesn't care that I'm a storm cloud that's above New Jersey, and now I'm a storm cloud that's above New York, and now I'm a storm cloud, you know, that's above Mexico. Like, it's the sky. And as human beings, no matter how much we try and resist, in fact, it's to our detriment that we resist, but we are an extension of the land of nature and we are interconnected therefore with each other and so this kind of pluralistic lens that people coming from multiple cultures that it's, it's just it's another way of seeing that every human being 
can benefit from. The world is becoming increasingly interconnected and multicultural, yet we're still prone to thinking about human identity within antiquated binary categories of gender, race, class, the able-bodied, and the isolated self. Such categories no longer adequately express the complexity of our social landscape today, which is increasingly populated by mixed subjects whose experiences are irreducible to either-or binaries. As Camille reminds us, you and I, we're all mixed assemblages of the great number of things that affect us. That wraps up our conversation with Camille Hoffman. Next up, we discuss the intersection of Filipinx and Latinx identity with Anthony Ocampo. Anthony Ocampo is a Filipino-American sociologist, author, and educator whose work focuses on race, immigration, and LGBTQ issues. His most recent book, The Latinos of Asia, How Filipino-Americans Break the Rules of Race, was recently featured on NPR and is out now. Filipinos break the rules of race uh, because I think in the United States we're so comfortable with these categories of white, black, Latino, Asian American. But what happens when you have a group who fits several boxes but yet still identifies as part of one single group? That can be really confusing for most people that aren't part of that group. So I think in that way, because of the history of colonialism, the history of immigration, they have overlapping experiences with several different boxes. And I think that this country doesn't know how to grapple with that. And I hope that focusing on the Filipino case gives people a template for how people who fit multiple categories navigate that in everyday life. And remember, this podcast is an extension of our site, mixfields.com. That's mxdflz.com. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to write us at contact at mixfields.com or hit us up on social media. We look forward to sharing more with you on our next episode. Until then.